Welcome to ReachMD. This special edition of the Global Women's Health Academy series is sponsored by Topek Global and supported by Merck KGAA, Darmstadt, Germany. Welcome to Pre-Implantation Genetic Diagnosis, presented by Dr. Martha Luna Rojas, Co-Director of Reproductive Medicine Associates of New York, Mexico, and Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility at Mount Sinai School of Medicine from Mexico City, Mexico. This lecture was recorded during a live meeting held in Sao Paulo, Brazil. It's a real honor to be here and to be able to talk about pre-implantation genetic diagnosis among clinicians. So we know for a fact that PGD has its clear indications. That that's not, there's no point of discussion about that. The real discussion subsides when we have patients with advanced maternal age or recurrent pregnancy loss or couples who have undergone multiple IVF cycles and have failed to conceive. That's where we question ourselves and patients even question us about whether the next step should be PGD. Um, I just want to point out, because we've been using the term PGS, uh, the word screening, um, and there has been debate about this, but um, for just for reference, I'm going to be re referring to PGS as PGD with CCS, okay, just because a screening tool is not what we're doing when we offer PGS to patients. A screening tool involves a non-invasive test that can be applied to everyone with results that not necessarily have to be that accurate. So um, from a practical standpoint, I'll be referring to PGD specifically with these patients um, that are debatable. So we've learned and we know that the majority of centers um, in Latin America and in the world still rely on the morphology of embryos to decide which embryos to select. And in our lab, and I'm pretty sure that in many of your labs, 100% um, of our transfers are, are done on day, on day five. Um, and we know that there is a clear correlation between the blastulation rate, cleavage rates, to the possibility of the embryo um, implanting. However, as Dr. Horton mentioned in the morning, there are some many studies related to the proteins that are within the embryo or metabolites that are secreted within the culture media. However, the results of those studies are still um, in the air. We don't know what to do with what to do with those results. Um, clinically, there's no test at this point where we can offer to our patients to study these aspects within the embryo. So really, we have to rely on the morphology of embryos and on the genetic aspects of those embryos in order to select them for implantation, for transfer. So we know that the aneuploidy rate is higher in the early cleavage stage embryos, and we know that the, the aneuploidy rate decreases as the embryo grows in culture. However, the morphology of these embryos, even though we're transferring them on day five, is not enough in order to counsel a patient as to um, how many embryos to transfer, um, what her prognosis is. As you can see, this is a, um, a study that was published by the group of Richard Scott in which more than 15,000 embryos were tested. These are embryos that made it to the blastocyst stage. And just keep in mind that these embryos have to be of good morphology in order to undergo a biopsy. So really, these are filtered embryos, and despite the quality or the morphology of these embryos, notice how a very high aneuploidy rate is detected or identified in the older 
patient age category. So we need more information. We have to rely on the genetics aspects of these embryos in order to enhance our selection process. Um, and you know that the biopsy can be done on day three, day five, polar body, et cetera, et cetera. But really focusing on the defective done biopsy, which is what we do in our center, 100% of biopsies are done on day five. We moved away from day three biopsy. This is due to the fact that it's less invasive for the embryo. Our implantation rates are sustained. And this was demonstrated by a paper published a couple years ago by the group of Nathan Treff, in which um, a very elegant study, which um, he, or the group, um, allocated two groups, patients who underwent day three transfer, patients who underwent a day five transfer. And one embryo of each one of the patients was randomly selected to undergo a biopsy. Um, again, the transfer was based only on the morphology of the embryos. Um, and on those patients that did conceive, um, when the baby was born, DNA fingerprinting was done on the, the baby or the fetus. And it was correlated to the DNA fingerprint of that one biopsied embryo. And this way, um, the authors knew which embryo eventually implanted. And what they found was that when a day three biopsy was performed, uh, the implantation rates were significantly lower as opposed to those embryos that were transferred on day three that did not undergo a biopsy. And in regards to the embryos that were transferred on day five, as you can see, those embryos that were biopsied had the same implantation rates as those embryos that did not undergo a biopsy. So because of of this study, we have moved away from day three biopsy. We only do day five biopsies, and I would be interested to, to know what you do in your centers. Um, this is just a list of the different platforms that are currently validated and in use in the different labs. Um, some offer certain advantages over others. For example, quantitative PCR has the advantage that the turnaround time is very short. We get results in, within four hours. Um, next generation sequencing, which is uh, a newer cytogenetic test, well, has the advantage that we're sequencing the whole genome. We have um, a higher chromosome analysis resolution, which allows us to detect segmental aneuploidies. It allows us to detect very small deletions, very small duplications. Um, the disadvantage of all of these techniques is that, for example, polyploidism cannot be identified. Um, balanced rearrangements cannot be ident identified, or low-grade mosaicism as well cannot be identified. Um, for identification of mosaicism, NGS deems better than the other platforms, but still, when it's a low-grade mosaicism, it's not enough. So this is uh, one of the three randomized controlled trials um, that clearly demonstrates the impact that CCS or PDD has in patients who undergo this technique. Um, you all are aware of this publication by um, the group of Richard Scott and Eric Foreman, in which they randomly transferred, um, they so selected to transfer single embryo transfer patients based only on morphology, and then another group of patients underwent a single euploid embryo transfer. And notice um, how the ongoing pregnancy rates are significantly greater um, regardless of the age, but it's even astonishing to see this um, data. Clearly, the patients who are the most benefited are patients who are greater than the age of 38. And then in terms of um, transferring one 
euploid embryo transfer versus transferring two embryos based only on morphology. You can see that the ongoing pregnancy rates are similar. However, the multiple pregnancy rate, of course, is significantly greater in patients who receive two embryos only based on morphology. So it's, there's clear evidence that uh, demonstrates that the implantation and delivery rates are improved and the multiple gestation rates are reduced um, when PGD with single embryo transfer is performed. There's no question about that. And we know as well that the implantation rates are sustained up to, a, up to 60% even in women who are um, older than 38, 40 years of age. And one of the first publications to confirm this was a publication by Dagan Wales and his team in which notice how the ongoing pregnancy rates per transfer was sustained regardless of the patient's age. Of course, we have to keep in mind that a lot of these patients did not undergo a transfer because they did not have euploid embryos to transfer. But if a patient did have a euploid embryo, regardless of the fact that she was 40 or 42 or 43, they have pretty much a good chance of conceiving. Now, these are our results. Um, our lab is centered in New York. Um, and we do many uh, PDD cases. Um, this is just a, a recent report. This is the latest report from the last couple of years, in which notice how, again, regardless of patient age, our pregnancy rates and our clinical pregnancy rates are somewhat sustained. And these are really, really good numbers. But we also have to keep in mind that the, lo the loss rate is still up there. 20% of patients still lose their pregnancy. So that's something that um, can result frustrating for us when we have a patient who had achieved a pregnancy after undergoing a euploid transfer, and they lose a pregnancy. So the way we perform PGD in our lab, um, and this has changed, but initially what we would do uh, was allow the embryo to, go, to grow up to day five, and then of those embryos that were fully expanded on day five, they would undergo a biopsy, and then PCR, quantitative PCR, would be performed to obtain results the following day and perform a fresh embryo transfer. However, uh, this changed, and it changed for several reasons. The first reason was that we were um, deselecting some embryos to undergo transfer in the fresh transfer because a lot of these embryos were, did not meet the criteria to undergo biopsy on day five. So if they weren't biopsy on day five, if they were not biopsied on day five, then we, were, we wouldn't be able to transfer them the following day. These embryos would then be biopsied on day six and frozen on day six or vitrified on day six. Um, but we moved away from this as well because we felt that when we um, perform a biopsy of embryos on day five, these embryos have to be hatched on day three. So on day five, they're biopsied. And then if they're kept in culture one more day, we were transferring many embryos that were fully expanded, six AA embryos, without the sona pellucida. So we really felt, well, we would think, oh my God, these embryos are great. But then when we saw that these embryos would not implant, we questioned ourselves. How much impact does it have to, um, to draw an embryo into a catheter and then expel it into the uterus without the sona pellucida? So we don't know how that clinically might have impacted, but we were seeing that these patients weren't getting pregnant. So we decided to change the way we do PTD, and now we, allow, uh, we perform the biopsy on day five um, of those embryos that are fully expanded. We freeze the embryos. Those embryos that don't, have not reached expansion on day five are grown, kept in culture one more day. 
and their biopsied on day six, and then we do either quantitative PCR or next generation sequencing, which is what we've been doing in the last six months as well. And then with the results, we perform, we perform a subsequent embryo transfer. Um, and then we wanted to see the, this data, um, the difference of when we would do the transfer uh, freshly versus freezing all embryos and then transferring in the subsequent cycle. So we, we had many patients to be able to do the analysis and the comparison. Um, the bar in blue represents patients who underwent a fresh embryo transfer, the bar in red patients who um, underwent only a frozen embryo transfer, and the green bars represent patients who did not get pregnant in the fresh transfer and then had supernumerary euploid embryos and underwent then a frozen embryo transfer. Anyway, what we see here is that the clinical pregnancy rate and pregnancy rate and implantation rate overall is higher in the patients in which they did not receive a fresh embryo transfer but received the subsequent frozen embryo transfer of a euploid embryo. So um, despite this, it's rather disappointing, as we mentioned before, that although we're transferring euploid blastuses, which are morphologically optimal, well, not all of them will implant, and the loss rate is not 0% in these patients. And then we have to keep in mind as well that many of these embryos don't reach a good enough quality to be biopsied. So we're discarding embryos that we don't know for sure whether they might have had a chance to implant or not. Um, and we feel that the reason why morphologically euploid embryos um, don't implant may be secondary to still a mosaicism phenomenon within the embryo, to the fact that the current technique does not pick up all segmental aneuploidies, especially when the, the megabases are, are small. Um, even with NGS, it cannot be picked up. And then the other thing is that we may be transferring euploid embryos, but what about the metabolism of the embryo? We're still not having um, accurate information about the metabolism of the embryo, and that can definitely play a role in implantation. So again, as I mentioned, the mosaicism is a very common phenomenon in day three embryos. Up to 60% of embryos are going to be mosaic. And the percentage of mosaicism decreases as the embryo develops in culture. Um, a mosaic cell can either self-correct or it can undergo cell arrest. And then we don't know for sure how those mosaic cells are allocated within the trophectoderm. So are they allocated in clusters? Are they allocated or sparsed all around the trophectoderm? We don't know, and we don't know when the biopsy is performed, whether the biopsy is being performed in a group of cells that are euploid or aneuploid. I mean, it's, it's really difficult, and there's no way um, currently to be able to identify this before doing the biopsy. And when we talk about mosaicism, we have to keep in mind that there are sampling errors, which means that what if the biopsy is done from these cells, which are aneuploid? then the result will be compatible with the pure aneuploid embryo. It would be a false positive result. Um, and it may be that this embryo would eventually self-correct it and may have implanted. So we're deselecting these embryos from implantation. Um, and what about if the cells would have been biopsied from this area and we had three to five normal cells and the, the embryo would be reported as a euploid embryo? It would be a false negative result um, this embryo would have been transferred because we think it's a healthy embryo, and it would have failed to implant, maybe because it was significantly mosaic. And then there are reciprocal, reciprocal errors that we have to account for as well. So let's say that these cells have an extra chromosome 13, 
And these cells have, uh, um, uh, are lacking a chromosome 13, have monosomy 13. So if a cluster of these cells is biopsied, then they're placed in a reaction tube, they're lysed, the DNA is freed from these cells, and then the mixture is created, and then a single sample of these cells is analyzed. We have to keep in mind that this embryo may be a mosaic embryo, which is um, going to be undetected, because the extra chromosome in one cell will compensate for the lack of the chromosome in the other cell. So this can also be a cause for which embryos are not um, normal, diagnosed as normal embryos are not implanting. Um, so currently, when with NGS, when the reports that are compatible with mosaicism in embryos, they're reported as high-risk mosaic. Um, with NGS, um, more than 20% of mosaicism, mosaicism can be picked up. If it's less than 20% mosaicism within the biopsy, then um, the result can be undetected. Um, and again, we have to keep in mind, if there is a 20%, a result of 20% mosaicism, we have to keep in mind that it may be, for example, if we have a reciprocal error in which 40% of cells analyzed are monosomic and 60% are trisomic, well, there's going to be a 20% difference, right? And it turns out that this embryo was completely abnormal. But if it's reported as 20% difference, I mean, it, we might consider it um, suitable for transfer. And this result would be completely indistinguishable from a sample that is 80% disomic and really only 20% trisomic, right? So we would only have a 20% difference here as well, and perhaps this embryo has a better chance of implanting if it autocorrects itself. So again, as I mentioned, this is how the report comes out, at risk for mosaicism, but the problem is, what do we do with this result? Do we transfer the embryo? Do we not transfer the embryo? Perhaps if we don't transfer that embryo and the embryo would have implanted, well, that's going to reduce our pregnancy rates. Again, if we have a mosaic embryo and we tell the patient, your embryo is mosaic, let's transfer it, well, patients might not be happy with that recommendation because then why are they undergoing PDD from, from the, you know, the get-go? So this is a very interesting publication in which over 3,000 blastocysts were analyzed, and it turned out that 18 patients of this group, 18 patients did not have a euploid embryo to transfer, but these 18 patients had one mosaic embryo identified. So these patients were counseled by the physician, and the patients accepted to undergo the transfer of that mosaic embryo. As you can see, this is... <laughs> really amazing information. After the transfer of these mosaic embryos, a total of eight patients had a positive pregnancy test. Of these, six patients delivered a healthy baby with a completely normal karyotype. So let's say that we transfer a euploid embryo and we're certain that it's not mosaic. Um, the other reason, as I mentioned, in which an embryo might not implant is because of problems within, within its metabolism. So the group of Elpida Fragoli um, has clearly demonstrated that mitochondrial DNA is correlated as well to the ploidy status of embryos. And they've demonstrated that euploid embryos have a low, um, low grade of mitochondrial DNA expressed as opposed to aneuploid embryos. And last year, they published this um, paper in which although euploid embryos were being implanted, um, they noticed that in those embryos 
that did achieve implantation, the mitochondrial DNA was significantly lower than those embryos that did not implant, despite the fact that they're euploid, which demonstrated a significantly greater expression of mitochondrial DNA. So, because of these pitfalls associated with PDD, who should we offer PDD to then? Should we offer it to patients with recurrent pregnancy loss, advanced maternal age, multiple failed IVF cycles? Should we offer it to every patient? Should we consider the possibility of adding the identification or expression of mitochondrial DNA? Thank you. This has been a special edition of the Global Women's Health Academy series on ReachMD. The preceding program was sponsored by Topec Global and supported by Merck KGAA, Darmstadt, Germany. If you have missed any part of this program, visit reachmd.com GWHA. Thank you for listening.